Dart departs for a date with destiny. This week on Planetary Radio. Too much alliteration? Welcome. I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. The launch window for the double asteroid redirection test mission opens shortly after 1 a.m. Eastern Time on November 24th. Like all planetary science missions, it has been a long time coming and is the work of many. Unlike any previous mission, it will attempt to change the course of a small asteroid by slamming into it at 6.6 kilometers per second or 15,000 miles per hour. Demonstrating this capability might change the course of future history. DART coordination lead Nancy Shabo is back to prepare us for this journey. Jupiter's moon Io is impacted by asteroids, but you can rarely see the craters they leave. That's because it is constantly being resurfaced by volcanoes. And that's just one of the solar system's volcanic worlds that my colleague, Ray Paletta, has written about. She'll join me in a couple of minutes. Down the line, Bruce Betts and I will introduce you to the Planetary Society member who outbid the competition in our recent auction. His dubious reward? Joining Bruce and me on this week's What's Up. Turns out he's a bit of an aerospace pioneer. One of those ionic volcanoes can be seen blowing its top at the top of the November 12 downlake, the Planetary Society's free weekly newsletter. Below it are these headlines. The Crew 2 astronauts returned to Earth on November 9th. Crew 3 headed to the International Space Station the very next day. NASA has admitted that a 2024 return to the moon by humans is not going to happen. They're now aiming for 2025 at the earliest. I've since heard that it could be two or three years later. Step lightly on those eggshell worlds. A new study describes some exoplanets as having ultra-thin crusts and no plate tectonics. Researchers believe they would not be likely places to find life and really Who'd want to spend their life walking on eggshells? You'll always find the latest edition of the Downlink at planetary.org downlink. And if you really want to stay up to the minute, check out our social media channels. Ray Paletta is an editor for the Planetary Society. Ray, who doesn't love, I mean, unless you're from Pompeii or Herculaneum, who doesn't love a great volcanic eruption, right? Oh, you, you absolutely have to love them. I mean, they're just amazing. I'm going to start where you ended with this November 11, 2021 piece, which is titled Mind-Blowing Pictures of the Solar System's Most Volcanic Worlds. It is a great collection of these uh, (laughs) fiery mountains uh, all over the solar system. You started with our own planet, which, uh, you know, you point out, no apologies needed. We're a planet in space. We have volcanoes. Exactly. I mean, I think that we have to give Earth a little bit of credit, right? I mean, we are kind of in a way of the ultimate volcano world. I mean, sure, we're not Io, or we're not a world with cryovolcanoes, exactly. But we do have some of the most impressive ones in the solar system. We've got about 1,300, 1,350 potentially active volcanoes on Earth right now. I mean, that's we've got to give ourselves a little bit of credit there. Absolutely. Let's look elsewhere. And I'm going to start with this terrific uh, infographic that was uh, developed by our colleague at the Society, Merck Boyan, Volcanoes of Our Solar System. It's gorgeous to look at, and it's been getting lots of attention. But really what stands out for me is just how far ahead of every other volcano is Olympus Mons, at least in terms of height, if not activity. It's just a monster. I mean, it is super impressive to think that this is out there. I mean, I had definitely had a little bit of a mini existential crisis when Merck showed this to me at first. I was like, what? How can anything be that large? It's not that tall, is it? Well, yeah, actually, it is up there on the red planet. You cannot talk volcanoes in our solar system without going to Io, which is, I mean, come on, it's the volcano planet. It is the volcano planet. In fact, even NASA has said that it's the most volcanic body in our solar system. There's just so much going on here. In fact, I think there's more than 400 active volcanoes right now on Io or something. Um, it's, It's amazing. And it's a relatively small world. You know, I've joked in the past that I would hate to be 
a cartographer specializing in IO because the surface is constantly changing because of all the activity up there. But it's certainly not alone. You go through a number of other worlds, Venus, where I guess we know there are volcanoes, but we're not still not quite sure whether they're active. Uh, what are the chances we're going to learn soon? So isn't that amazing to think about? This one's really interesting. People that follow my work know that I am a huge Venus uh, fan, by the way. So I hope I'm not like giving away too much here. But I think it's really cool that we're going to get three Venus missions relatively soon. We're going to get Veritas, Envision, Da Vinci Plus. And I think that all three of those are going to give us some sort of insight into the uh, volcanic activity on Venus. We've never actually seen it directly directly imaging them, but I think that people are pretty confident that uh, the activity is ongoing there. You also got Europa. You've got uh, Enceladus. Can't leave those out. But I, I want to turn to the one that's the farthest out, at least in this collection, and that's Triton, where there are more of these so-called ice volcanoes or cryovolcanoes. It seems like a contradiction in terms. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It's funny. I think this is the one that I've gotten the most questions about. I even spoke mm. about this with my mom, uh, hopefully. Hi, mom, if you're listening to this, because <laughs> she was so fascinated with Triton. And I think this one is super cool, no pun intended, uh, because it's kind of like this icy world, and we really don't know that much about it. To me, I feel like, you know, after I wrote this piece, I said to Jason, uh, Jason Davis, the editor, by the way, my editorial director, he uh, and I were speaking, I was like, you know, I think that the article kind of unintentionally advocates for more missions to the outer planets and the outer worlds. And I personally would love to see a Neptune and Uranus mission in my lifetime. Hey, anybody who listens to this show knows that we are entirely intentional about wanting <laughs> more missions to those outer worlds, Uranus and, and Neptune. I, I'll just close with this. Uh, you didn't do this entirely on your own. You talked to some terrific uh, researchers to get a lot of uh, what you've uh, shared with us. I spoke to some really incredible scientists who have done so much awesome work on some of these worlds. I mean, Julie Rathbun, um, Paul Byrne, uh, Caitlin Ahrens, just phenomenal. Please follow them. They are super, super smart. Ray, thank you so much. Hey, Ray's mom, she did a good job, didn't she? <laughs> As usual. Uh, Ray Paletta is who we've been talking to. She is my colleague, editor for the Planetary Society. You can read her piece at planetary.org. Just uh, look for it among the articles. It's dated November 11. Once again, mind-blowing pictures of the solar system's most volcanic worlds. Ray, if you uh, if you ever visit one, don't get too close. <laughs> I'll be sure to exercise caution. No need to write. Ray and I both know that Io is a moon, not a planet. Really, move away from the keyboard. We last talked with Nancy Chabo in the Defenders of Earth panel discussion that highlighted the 2021 Planetary Defense Conference. She was joined in that May 12 episode by many other Planetary Defense All-Stars, including our own Bruce Betts and NASA's Kelly Fast, Program Manager for the Planetary Defense Coordination Office. That office at the agency's headquarters has oversight of the Double Asteroid Redirection Test Mission. You may have heard Casey Dreyer talking to Lindley Johnson, head of the PDCO, in the November 21 Planetary Radio Space Policy Edition. The list of institutions that are contributing to DART is long and impressive. They are led by the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab, where Nancy is also planetary chief scientist and runs the Meteorite Lab. Nancy, it is always a pleasure to talk to you on Planetary Radio or anywhere else. Welcome back to the show. Great. I'm happy to be here again. I always like coming... I want to proudly tell you, first off, that I passed APL's Planetary Defender Test just this morning, got my certificate and badges, and uh, so I, I think congratulations are also due to me. Uh, you want to talk about that, this program that is offered for people to get involved in the mission? Yeah, well, congratulations on becoming a planetary <laughs> defender. We're very happy to have as many planetary defenders as we can get around the world. So yeah, it's a it's a neat little quiz. Uh, you can go on to the DART website and take the quiz right there. And you have to answer a few questions. And after that, there's a cool badge that you can put on your social media accounts and share with your family and friends. There's actually a certificate you can press, you know, print out that'll have your name and the date that you passed on it. I've taken the test uh, multiple times 
myself and I've passed as well. <laughs> I'm glad. I'm sure you aced it. Uh, I, I did the same and I'd have been very embarrassed in front of my colleagues if, if I hadn't since planetary defense is a pretty important priority for all of us at the Planetary Society, which of course is why we continue to be so excited about DART. It must be just almost overwhelmingly exciting for you and the whole team at APL and elsewhere. What is the current status of uh, of the spacecraft? Are you go for launch from uh, Vandenberg Air Force Base? It is a really exciting time for our full team. And it's just a, you know, it's a privilege to be here talking on behalf of the team, um, which is uh, international and around the world. A lot of people have worked to make this first planetary defense asteroid deflection mission happen. It's been a long time in the coming. And yeah, go for launch. Uh, the launch uh, period opens on November 23rd Pacific time. Um, and so we are on track and ready for that launch. There are a lot of us who uh, plan to be uh, up and uh, and watching that, uh, that launch. Uh, along with you, where are you going to be? I'll be out in California at Vandenberg Space Force Base, uh, watching it there. Um, from the trajectory, uh, it does sound like if the weather cooperates, that uh, along the southern coast of California, people will be able to look up into the skies and see it as well. So we'll have more details on that as it gets closer, I'm sure. Well, that's a gift that everybody in Southern California can thank you for. With those con those uh, contrails or, or uh, the exhaust from those uh, rockets taking off from Vandenberg often put on quite a show over down, even as far south as San Diego, where uh, I am. For those, that handful of listeners in the audience for this show who may not have heard of it, could you give us the thumbnail description of the mission, what you're setting out to do? Sure. The Double Asteroid Redirection Test Mission, DART for short, is a NASA mission that is focused on planetary defense. And in particular, it's going to demonstrate how you might deflect an asteroid in the future if you needed to, to keep it from hitting the Earth. This is just a test. That's what the T in DART stands for. These asteroids are not a threat to the Earth, but this makes it a perfect system in order to go crash the spacecraft into this asteroid, give it a small nudge. It's just a, about deflection, not disruption. We're not trying to destroy this asteroid, just give it a small nudge that adds up to a big change in its position in time. And this is what you would do if you wanted to avoid asteroid and Earth being on a collision course in the future, potentially. And that D for double is a pretty significant part of the, uh, the name of this mission as well, because we're going to, you, you said it's a system, right? Yeah, the double asteroid is really enabling for this DART mission. There's two asteroids. Um, there's the larger asteroid Didymos, and it has a small moon asteroid Dimorphos that goes around it every 11 hours and 55 minutes. Uh, it was discovered from telescopes here on the Earth, and telescopes on the Earth have been looking at it for decades. And so we know a lot about how this system works. And what this allows us to do is we know the system ahead of time. The DART spacecraft will come speeding in really fast, 15,000 miles per hour, and run into Dimorphos, the smaller moon. And it's just going to change how it goes around the larger asteroid by about 1%. Mm -hmm. And then we'll use the telescopes here on the Earth to figure out how much we deflected this asteroid again. 15,000 miles per hour, which I happen to know is about 6.6 .6 kilometers or 4.1 miles per second. I know that because it was Bruce Betts' random space fact in uh, last week's uh, episode of Planetary Radio. Tell us about DART's one and only instrument and its heritage as well, because I think it's a part of how you've been able to pull off this mission um, uh, relatively cheaply. Yeah, there's one camera on board the main DART spacecraft. It's called Draco. And it is uh, based on the design of the LORI instrument that took spectacular images of Pluto and Arakoth on the New Horizons mission. Um, and so using that same similar camera telescope design is what we're using here for DART. I was actually surprised to see how many other technologies, some of them new technologies or are along for the ride on DART from its engine to its, uh, to its solar panels. Can you talk a little bit about some of those? 
Yeah, I can talk a lot about the new technologies on there because <laughs> there are quite a few of them. Some of the most obvious ones might be the rollout solar arrays. So these arrays, when they are uh, launched, are rolled up sort of like rolls of tinfoil, mm. and they're really lightweight material. And then they're going to roll out in space, and they're going to extend quite a distance, uh, 18 meters tip to tip. And so this is a, this is really kind of a new technology um, that's been uh, demonstrated on the space station, but this will be the first spacecraft to to use those, those rollout solar arrays. We also have the NEXT-C ion propulsion engine, which is a power more powerful ion engine that has been flown on other NASA missions. So we're just using this to demonstrate its in-flight capabilities, but it could be very enabling for future missions. But I'd have to say that our number one technology for DART is SmartNav. Which is how you're going to pull off this, I, I, I don't know, how would you describe it? It seems like sort of uh, hitting a golf ball with, uh, with a BB or something like that. Yeah, so the spacecraft is going really fast and it's actually targeting a small asteroid. The asteroid is only 160 meters in diameter, less than two football fields. So one hour ahead of time, you are 15,000 miles away from something that's the size that's smaller than two football fields. And you have to make sure that your spacecraft goes and hits that smaller object. The other complication is this double asteroid system. There's the two asteroids. And actually, you can't resolve the difference, even using Draco, this amazing telescope that's based off the ones that took pictures of Pluto and things like that. Even using that great camera that we have, you can't actually tell the difference in those images between Didymos and Dimorphos until the last hour of the mission. So wow. before that, they're in the same pixel. And so in the last hour, you have to ensure that the spacecraft going very fast hits this 160-meter Dimorphos asteroid, and that's all done on board. You can't have humans in the loop because of this small time frame and what you're talking about. So the images will get taken by Draco. They'll be interpreted on board by the smart nav system and the algorithms, and those will be used to control the thruster firing of the spacecraft to ensure that you impact into Dimorphos and not Didymos or miss altogether. One of the other challenges is with this is we don't actually know what Dimorphos looks like. We've never seen it before. And we know asteroids have all sorts of weird shapes. So we've been doing extensive testing. The DART team has done extensive testing using all sorts of different asteroid shapes and sizes and how things might be illuminated because that's this is an, uh, an imager, a visible imager that's going to be used in order to do this interpretation. And all of that is feeding into SmartNav being able to target a small asteroid. And targeting small asteroids is something that you would want to do if you were doing a planetary defense mission to protect the Earth in the future. So this makes me wonder if you and the team are taking into account what we have learned from just recent asteroid missions, like, you know, Hayabusa 2, OSIRIS-REx. Has, have they had any effect on your planning and, and the programming that's going in so that DART can, can handle this on its own? Hayabusa 2 and OSIRIS-REx, every mission that goes to asteroids tells us new information about these bodies, which is incredibly useful for science, understanding how the solar system formed, how it evolved, what it was like billions of years ago, but it's also really relevant to the present and the future for planetary defense, protecting the Earth from these objects going forward. Those information that we've gotten from those two missions have been incredibly valuable. I wouldn't say that they have changed anything about our plan for DART, but mm. definitely we will be taking the knowledge that we gained from DART and putting it in the context of all of these asteroids, because this is really just the first step. DART is just the start of planetary defense, and how you would apply this to asteroids in the future will be exciting work to go. Casey Dreyer, my colleague, our uh, chief Ag advocate, senior space policy advisor, you know, he does the, the monthly uh, space policy edition of Planetary Radio with me. And his guest on the November show was Lindley Johnson, who you know well, uh, NASA's planetary defense officer, leader of the Planetary Defense Coordination Office, which is overseeing the DART mission at NASA headquarters, I believe. Uh, I don't think you'll be surprised to hear that Lindley speaks glowingly and with great anticipation about uh, about the DART mission and about the pioneering role that this mission is is going to to fulfill if all goes well. I mean, really, while we have touched asteroids before and we even slammed into a comet once years ago with Deep Impact, this is really the first time we're doing something like this, isn't it? 
It really is. I mean, DART is a pioneering planetary defense mission, a mission focused on planetary defense objectives. Like you said, it's the first one that's being launched out of NASA's Planetary Defense Coordination Office, which was only stood up in 2016. And so it really is setting the stage for things to come forward. We're really happy to have uh, Lucia Cube on here, the CubeSat contributed by the Italian Space Agency. And we're really happy to have ESA's HERA mission that's going to follow up on DART and get there in 2026. Also a dedicated planetary defense mission in many ways to see the crater made by DART in Dimorphos and to get the mass of Dimorphos. And I think this all underlines that DART really is just the start, that DART really is pioneering the way for these future planetary defense uh, missions and investigations to go so that if we needed to prevent asteroids from hitting the Earth in the future, that we might have the capability to do that. I'm so glad that you mentioned that little CubeSat that uh, DART is going to carry along on, on its journey uh, from the Italian Space Agency. Can you talk about how it's going to uh, be a witness to this um, uh, <laughs> cosmic impact? Yeah, Lichia Cube is an incredibly capable, small little uh, CubeSat on its own. And so it will get kicked off of the main DART spacecraft about 10 days in advance of DART's collision with the asteroid. And that'll give it enough time to get out of the way so that it also won't collide with the asteroid. It will get spectacular images of DART's collision, and then it'll make its closest flyby of Dimorphos roughly three minutes after DART's collision and get um, really great images of the ejecta and how that's formed. We think there's likely going to be too much ejecta to really see the surface and see the crater that DART created at the time, but we'll see what those images show. Um, and then Lichio Cube will just keep on, uh, keep on its path, and those images will actually take a little while to get back down. They'll take a few weeks hmm. after DART's collision before we'll have all of those uh, but it, it really is a great addition. And I think all of this just underlines that planetary defense is a global concern. And so international cooperation for this international issue is key. So we're really happy to be uh, collaborating with the Italian Space Agency and having the European Space Agency following on with HERA and all of this moving forward into a world where there are future planetary defense missions and we continue to advance these capabilities. Something that just occurred to me, I remember when we uh, we were looking forward to getting those images from that long ago impact or deep impact, you couldn't really see that much because the explosion made such a big flash and all kinds of ejecta. Is that one of the reasons this little CubeSat is going to delay its imaging or are there other reasons for that? I mean, you, I'm sure people have thought about how deep impact uh, did its job. Yeah, being able to measure the ejecta and what the ejecta looks like is one of the main goals for Lichia Cube. And you want to give that a little time to evolve in, so to, in, in order to see how the ejecta has come out from the dart impact. And all of that was taken into account with the timing of its flyby. Though you won't be able to see the surface, seeing the ejecta is very important. This is what gives the asteroid the extra push, right? This uh, momentum enhancement factor that we talk about so much. The DART spacecraft will come in and it will impart its momentum and be destroyed when it hits the asteroid. But we really suspect that the amount of ejecta that's created is going to be substantial. And it's going to be sort of like a little jet that pushes in the opposite direction and even deflects the asteroid even more. How much that is, is one of the main reasons to do this uh, real test on a real asteroid of a relevant size. Isaac Newton would be so proud. We do have a lot still to learn about uh, space rocks. Uh, don't we? And I mean, that's in spite of other missions that are underway and and getting underway. I'm thinking of Lucy and Psyche. And and just a couple of weeks ago, we were talking with uh, Sarah Alamiri of the United Arab Emirates about the, the very ambitious uh, asteroid mission that, that they're taking on. You've got to be happy to see all this. And I believe I'm right. We have a lot to learn, don't we? We do have a lot to learn, and it is uh, really exciting. I think all of us in the field of planetary science and in planetary defense encourage as many missions as possible to try to investigate these really unique objects. A lot of times, I think sometimes we do it a disservice by just referring to them all as asteroids or, or small bodies because they're all so different. You know, they tell you very different things about the formation of the solar system, the evolution of the solar system, and they have different implications for planetary defense as well, depending on their size, their composition, how they're put together. And all of these are important factors. So going to this wide range of diversity 
is a treasure trove for science, but it's also really important to get a handle on the extremes that you might be dealing with for planetary defense. Do you think we're going to have to uh, smack into some more asteroids uh, in the future as we you know, learn how to keep them from smacking into uh, Earth? I do think that future asteroid mitigation missions will be necessary. DART is all about deflection, giving a small nudge, not disruption, not destroying it. Um, and that's one capability. And given the DART results, we might want to follow up with getting better at asteroid deflection through a kinetic impactor, this mm. event that happens that's a one-time thing and is very energetic. There's other ways for planetary defense that people are considering as well, more of these slow push methods, if you will, which are not just this one event that happens, but where you uh, work to move the asteroid slowly over long periods of time through using uh, ion beams, for example, to focus on the surface or a gravity tractor where you uh, kind of just hover near it and the force of gravity acts. All of these, though, share one thing that makes planetary, that unites planetary defense in any mitigation capability, and that is find the asteroids early. This is really the key for planetary defense. So sometimes it can seem a little glamorous to talk about deflecting asteroids or these other ways that you might mitigate them. But really underpinning planetary defense is finding the asteroids, identifying them, characterizing them, tracking them, giving yourself as much warning time as possible. All of the mitigation techniques are better served with that warning time. So are you looking forward to the launch uh, of NEO Surveyor, that uh, infrared space telescope that we've all been talking about for so long? I am very much looking forward to the launch of Neo Surveyor. I could not be more pleased. Um, I think that's on track for 2026 and uh, just waiting for it to get up there. Uh, that's been a huge priority for planetary defense for a very long time, many, many years. And so it's great to see NASA funding that mission and having it on track to be doing what it needs to do in 2026, a space-based telescope is the best way in order to identify the asteroids that might be a threat to the Earth. When Nancy Shabo and I return, we'll talk more about DART and some of the other missions of Discovery she is working on. From missions arriving at Mars to new frontiers in human spaceflight, 2021 has been an exciting year for space science and exploration. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. What were your favorite moments? You can cast your vote right now at planetary.org slash best of 2021 and help choose the year's best space images, mission milestones, memes, and more. That's planetary.org slash best of 2021. Thanks. When was your last trip to Antarctica? <laughs> My last trip to Antarctica was in 2005. Oh, it's so been a while. A while ago. Mm. Yeah. Kind of feels like a different lifetime almost. But yeah, before I uh, got the job here at the Applied Physics Lab, I was going to Antarctica pretty frequently. Isn't that because of your interest in these rocks that fall from space, although in this case, the, the little ones that uh, you can find uh, on the ice up there or down there? Yeah, I like to say that uh, Earth getting hit by things is not all bad. I love <laughs> meteorites. They are free sample returns from their free samples from space, rocks from space that you can hold in your hand. And they just come to us naturally. And all we have to do is go and pick them up and find them. And the capabilities that we have of studying meteorites in the lab down to literally the atomic scale now these days to learn about our solar system. There's actually meteorites contained pieces that predate our solar system. They're from other star systems. So literally by studying meteorites, we're learning about our solar system and beyond. We're learning how they went from these primitive materials to evolve materials that had cores and mantles and crust and volcanism and all of these processes. So I could talk all day about how <laughs> valuable meteorites are and how uh, these things hitting the earth are actually quite beneficial and not a concern. <laughs> I am with you. I am looking at the box that contains, sitting in a little bed of red sand from the Sahara, the iron meteorite that uh, was given to me by a friend ages ago who found it out there in the middle of the desert. So I have even more reason to be looking forward to the Psyche mission. Um, you are, in fact, a fellow of the, I hope I pronounce this correctly, the Meteoritical Society, and I saw that you were named its vice president. Now, that was in 2020. Are you still in that position? 
I am. Uh, so I started that in January of 2020. I will be vice president for 2020 and 2021. And then I will become president in 2022 and 2023, past president for two years after that. For me, this is a great honor to be serving in this position. Miracle Society is a scientific community that's very international, um, brings together scientists and collectors from around the world who work on meteorites. And it's been kind of like family it's one of the first conferences I went to in grad school when I started working in this field, when I first got into planetary science. And it's been a lot of the colleagues that I've been down to Antarctica with when I've gone five different times and who our paths continue to cross as we do our science to this day. And so it's it's really just a privilege to be uh, serving into a leadership position for this great society. You are sure staying busy. Um, tell us about Megane, which I, I think you you helped me before we started to record to pronounce that correctly. You're listed as the deputy PI for uh, one of the instruments that will be on that uh, Mars Moon Explorer, uh, Mars Moon Exploration, MMX mission uh, that uh, Japan is uh, preparing right now. Yeah, the Martian Moon Exploration Mission from the Japanese Space Agency is an exciting mission because it's dedicated to studying the Martian moons, Phobos and Deimos. Other missions have tried to be dedicated to studying these Martian moons, but haven't ever succeeded in the past. And so it's going to be very exciting to have missions dedicated to that. So Megane is the Mars Moon Exploration and Gamma Rays and Neutrons instrument. It's a gamma ray and neutron spectrometer. It's being built at APL. Um, there's a similar one that's going on Psyche, for example, on the mm. Psyche Mission 2 instrument. What it does is it determines the composition of these moons. We don't know how these moons formed, which is kind of a, a really cool question just in itself. Like, these are the only other inner solar system moons besides our own, and we literally don't know how they formed. But the theories predict very different compositions, whether they're captured asteroids or whether they're pieces of Mars that were blasted off the surface. So getting the composition is going to be key for distinguishing between these different theories. But I should add that that MMX mission is bringing back a sample of Phobos, too. So that's going to be really exciting. So we'll have the global context from Megane, the gamma ray and neutron spectrometer that we're building. But that'll really uh, provide the context for the sample that comes back to these Earth laboratories. And everything I was so excited talking about with meteorites is the same thing that you get to do with these samples when they come back and bring them into laboratories around the world to get the best possible information now. But then also in the future, I mean, Apollo samples remain heavily studied by the mm. scientific community as analysis and laboratory techniques advance over the years. You can go back to these samples and continue to get new information about them. So I'm just delighted to be uh, contributing to the MMX mission. Are you one of those who is hoping that uh, maybe one or two of those rocks that MMX might collect and that you might point Megani at before they're collected might have come up from the surface of Mars itself. In other words, we'd have Mars sample returned years before we uh, get uh, a mission to accomplish that down to the surface. Yeah, probably rock size is the wrong way to think about it. I think that uh, samples from Mars that people predict might be there might be smaller on the grain size. And the uh. samples that MMX is bringing back is kind of not like multiple rocks. You should sort of think of it as uh, the Hayabusa 2 sort of sample sizes. But we do think that because Earth laboratories can look at things on a grain by grain scale and even smaller, that there very likely are pieces of Mars in those samples on the Martian moons. And so we're looking forward to seeing that. That scale will be much too small for Megane. So what Megane would see instead is going to be a mixture and so it would look maybe like there was an asteroid material and some bulk Mars material and what those would look like when it was a mixture. But we won't be able to resolve uh, different components like that. You'll need the sample to do that. But the global context from the whole moon for the composition versus just the composition of your much, much smaller sample from just a, a given site on the moon will bring the whole system together and let us understand how these moons came to be. Very much looking forward to that mission. And to ESA uh, and JAXA's Bepi Colombo mission that is already out there, of course, uh, on its way to Mercury, a planet that you studied as part of the MESSENGER team some years ago. What's your role for Bepi Colombo? 
I'm Becky Colombo. I'm also really happy to be an interdisciplinary scientist. So I'm on the science team. Um, my focus is a lot on the polar regions and particularly on the ice deposits that are found both near Mercury's North and South Poles within these permanently shadowed regions, these craters that never see direct sunlight where we've seen evidence of ice. Messenger was the first mission I got the opportunity to work on, and I have such fond memories of that spacecraft and how long it lasted and the team and everything that we accomplished together, creating the first global map of this planet and seeing things that had never seen before. Messenger's orbit was really elliptical, so it passed close to the north and far from the South Pole. Mm. And so I've really been... A lot of us, not just me, really want to see the South Pole in much, much more detail. And Bepi Colombo is in an orbit that's going to enable that. And actually, the largest crater on the whole planet of Mercury with the largest amount of ice in it is Chao Meng Fu. And it's like right at the South Pole. And I uh, cannot wait to see Bepi Colombo measurements of this crater. Can't help but think of the comparison to our own moon and the ice that we've discovered at the poles there for the same reason, those permanently uh, uh, shadowed areas. Sounds like you expect to see something pretty similar. Actually, on Mercury, there is a lot more ice than on the moon. (laughs) It's actually super interesting that way. Yeah. And we even know from uh, Arecibo actually did a lot of great radar measurements of, of both poles and just very strong signals of these extensive water ice deposits and then messenger data supported that but the amount of ice water ice that you have at mercury's poles it's substantially more than we're seeing at the moon now the parts at the moon are still still significant and still potentially very useful especially for human exploration but why moon and mercury have such different uh inventories of water ice is is really an interesting question of itself You know, I I wasn't thinking of bringing up Arecibo, but since you have brought up its amazing radar, well, what were its amazing radar capabilities, and of course it had this wonderful role in characterizing asteroids as well, using that powerful radar, Uh, I wonder if you are lamenting its loss and, and hoping that we can find a replacement. Yeah, the whole community is lamenting its loss um, and mourning its loss. The contributions that it made to science were incredible. The contributions that it made to our community were incredible. And uh, everybody is still very much reeling from this loss. Uh, I do think, especially for planetary defense, that planetary radar has a very important role to play in order for understanding the orbits of these objects. And so I do think that it makes sense to consider going forward um, ways that we might be able to regain these capabilities I am not a planetary radar expert, so I will not try to uh, claim that I understand the best course of action forward, but we do have a huge gap in our knowledge and capabilities that uh, would be great to fill. Here, here. I got just one more for you, and it's about uh, a relatively new title that you've gained. I mentioned it at the at the top of the show when I was introducing you. New to me, anyway, although you said it's a couple of years old now, Planetary Chief Scientist for the Applied Physics Lab. What, what does that job entail? Planetary science at APL has really grown in the last 20 years. I mean, NEAR sort of set the stage for planetary science at APL, the first mission to rendezvous with an asteroid, um, and then followed on with Messenger and New Horizons to Pluto and these missions that we've talked about. So as planetary chief scientists, it's great to be in this position where we get to sort of see what we're doing now and see what we should be doing in the future. So it's sort of a future looking position in a lot of ways um, to try to guide and position so that we can continue to make these contributions, which push the field of planetary science forward um, using our capabilities at APL to enable that. I bet that it also allows you to work with a lot of young scientists, young engineers, as you once were yourself and uh, help them toward uh, the the careers, uh, the promise that lies ahead of them. That is one of the really rewarding things about being in this chief scientist position is being able to mentor earlier career scientists that we have at APL and outside of APL and sort of uh, continue everything that we've built so far into these future generations. These missions take lifetimes, literally sometimes, to see them from an idea and a spark in order to full implementation. And so uh, building up the community at APL and outside of APL is is very important for for all of us. And um, I know I 
feel very proud to be part of the planetary science community um, internationally, mm. and as well as like funded by NASA. And it's great to see everybody so devoted to uh, continuing all of the things that we have to explore in our solar system. Nancy, I think I can safely say on behalf of, of myself and all of us at the Planetary Society and everybody listening to this show, uh, we cannot wait to see that uh, rocket climb into the sky and put DART on its way and uh, how much we look forward to that, uh, that big bang, <laughs> that somewhat smaller big bang that uh, you hope to generate out there uh, at the asteroid. Uh, best of success with, uh, with the DART mission. Oh, well, thank you so much. Uh, the whole team is looking forward to it, and we're looking forward to sharing it with the world. Time for a rather special edition of What's Up on Planetary Radio. We are, as always, joined by the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. That's Bruce Betts. Welcome back. Thanks. Good to be back. But we are also joined by uh, a special guest. Arnie Grote is here with us in the session. Uh, welcome, Arnie. Oh, it's great to be here, Matt, and especially with Bruce, because I once took a class with him, well, not with him, from him, when he was associate professor, and he taught Astronomy 101, and I audited that course, you know, I didn't have to take the test, but being a past physicist and an engineer, I uh, was happy not to do that. <laughs> I'm curious, did you catch the very best of uh, the lectures that uh, Bruce would give each semester, the one that I was also on? <laughs> yeah, those were, they were fun things, you know, and I wouldn't say they were best, but they were good entertainment <laughs> as well as getting a lot of facts in them. Good answer. Good answer. Yeah, well, uh, maybe I won't ever have Matt on again if I if I teach it again. Anyway, people can still watch the archives of those at planetary.org slash bets class, B-E-T-T-S. Uh, thanks for taking the class, Arnie, and thanks for being here with us today. Where are you? It looks like you're at home. Well, I'm at home, and I live in uh, Connecticut, and I'm in my basement. You know, that's where my office is. I'm in a multi-generation family. I got my two daughters and three grandsons and son-in-law with me, as well as my wife. So we enjoy it togetherness. I was in Connecticut only, what is it now, about three weeks ago at my sister-in-law's house up in uh, rural Connecticut. And man, are you fortunate to live in a beautiful place. Um, you were also very fortunate. You were telling us before we started recording, you have written on, written on the fabled Vomit Comet, the original one. Well, yes, uh, I worked for Pratt & Whitney. I'm a materials engineer with an MS from the University of Tennessee. I got my aeronautical engineering degree from Purdue University. Back in the late 70s, you know, I was working in castings and uh, solidification, single crystals, and Marshall Space Flight Center was interested in that. I made samples for them. Later on, they invited me to join them for a week of flights on the Vomit Comet or the KC-135, which is out of, you know, Ellington Air Force Base, which is right next to the Johnson Space Flight Center. And so I did flights that day. One of the days they were doing a video with a bullfrog from Louisiana because they had teachers from Louisiana uh, flying. And uh, Brewster Shaw, one of the astronauts, was filming with them. So it was a fun weekend to get your ups and downs. Bruce, we have a connection to Purdue, don't we? Oh, we have a very strong connection to Purdue. Uh, Dave Spencer was a, is a professor there, uh, was. He's now at JPL as our project manager. And Justin Mansell got his PhD, partially working with LightSail2 data and is still providing critical work as a visiting professor there at Purdue. So LightSail2, heavily influenced and affected by the strong Purdue situation. And we have one of our two currently operating ground station tracking stations for LightSail2. Is it Purdue? Oh, I remember watching the uh, deployment and the unfolding online and seeing Bruce there and the Purdue people. So that, that was a fun thing. Arnie, we should say, while it's delightful to have you here, regardless of why you're here, the why is pretty significant as well. You were the winning, you had the winning bid in the recent auction that the Planetary Society conducted. I'm sure this was the grand prize, uh, getting to uh, spend these uh, few minutes uh, during What's Up uh, with, uh, with Bruce and me. So uh, thank you for your support. You're welcome. My pleasure. I enjoy the Planetary Society. 
and of course the chance to meet Bruce after all these years. <laughs> wow. Because I always I, watched his random space facts. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to disappoint you in person, but uh, oh well. <laughs> you can redeem yourself, Bruce, by telling us about the night sky. I'll try, Matt. Nice segue, by the way. We've got a a, a almost total lunar eclipse occurring this, this Thursday into Friday night, November 18th and 19th. It is over 97% total. So there's a little sliver of the moon not in the Earth's shadow. It's sort of centered over the mid-Pacific, so visible in North America, but also in Japan. Australia and New Zealand will see parts of it. Uh, so it, it's a good time. And uh, we'll hear in a moment about the oddity of being such a almost total eclipse. Oh, I was just saying, I was hoping I can uh, wake up. I normally do between uh, 3 and 5 a.m. so I can watch it out here on the East Coast at that mm. time. And it's not uh, cloudy. Yeah, clear skies. So I should say the greatest eclipse is at 9.03 UTC on the 19th. That's uh, 103 Pacific Standard Time, 403 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, and that's when it'll be most in eclipse. Uh, we've also still got bright planets hanging out in the uh, south and the west in the early evening. Going from low down on the horizon, we've got Venus looking super bright, Saturn looking kind of yellowish, Jupiter looking bright to their upper left. Beautiful, beautiful view. We move on to this week in space history. It was 1969 that Apollo 12, the second batch of humans, landed on the moon. And it was 1970 this week that the Soviets landed Lunokhod 1, the first wheeled vehicle successfully roving on the moon, robotically operated in this case. Well, Bruce, can you share any uh, random space facts with us today? Something I would like to hear. Well, I can certainly share a random space fact, and it ties to this uh, this eclipse because it's almost total, and because the moon is near apogee, so moving the slowest, it has these strange achievements of being the within a thousand year period the longest partial eclipse that will exist, and the umbral phase, the dark shadow phase will be the longest partial umbral, umbral eclipse of this century. So that'll be the penumbral eclipse, the whole partial shadow, the whole thing, six hours and two minutes, the umbral phase, which is easier to see by far, three and a half hours roughly. And uh, that's the odd ditty about this week's solar eclipse. <laughs> Let's try that again. Lunar eclipse. Sorry. Arnie, you got to be happy with that one. Well, I was happy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what matters. Let's go on to the contest. We asked you, who was the only chimpanzee to orbit orbit the Earth? How'd we do, Matt? First, Arnie, do you want to take a guess? Do you have any idea? Well, I know Ham was the first one, but I'm trying to think. Uh, I should know because I read some of these uh, things about it, but uh, things go out of my head, you know, too many facts. So who was the first I'm not going to tell you. I'm going to let Dave Fairchild, our poet laureate in Kansas, tell you. Ham became the hominid that first flew up on high. Enos followed after with two orbits in the sky. 18 kilograms in weight, he clocked in lots of hours, training for his Atlas flight from NASA's launching towers. That is correct. Enos was indeed the first chimp to orbit the Earth, although Ham was the first suborbital chimp. Enos was the only orbital chimp and the third hominid to orbit the Earth. Which we also heard from a lot of people who entered uh, this, this contest, that the first hominids were not chimps. They were human types, Yuri Gagarin and German Titov. Our winner, and I'm very glad to announce this because he's a longtime listener, first-time winner, is Michael Muller. Michael, who uh, is in the same region I'm in, uh, the San Diego area of California. And uh, he also, some time ago, contributed what I thought was a pretty entertaining caricature of yours, truly. <laughs> Didn't help him win, obviously, because he's been waiting a long time. But congratulations, Michael. He indeed said that uh, it's uh, Enos who was that first uh, chimp to uh, go into orbit. Michael, we're going to be sending you... I got it wrong when I announced this two weeks ago. It's not a Blue Shift Aerospace t-shirt. 
It's a Blue Shift Aerospace coffee mug. And after all, don't we all have enough T-shirts, but you never have enough coffee mugs, right, Bruce? Sure, Matt. (laughs) Also, their mission patch from their successful flight of their uh, very green rocket that they launched on the coast of uh, Maine in New England, uh, and a uh, patch for the company itself, Blue Shift Aerospace. Fresh Maine Rockets is the, is one of their slogans. Edwin King in the UK said that all this happened on November 29th, 1961. Enos was supposed to fly three orbits, but there was a malfunction of a machine designed to give him electric shocks. And that, among other problems, is why the mission was ended after two orbits. It also sets up reading this poem from Gene Lewin in the state of Washington, to pave the way for mortal man Enos sat in place aboard the Mercury Atlas V, now part of the space race. A simulated crewman was trained to act as one, shockingly orbiting our Earth twice, surely glad when it was done. It's true. I checked it out. They actually had a device that was supposed to give him shocks, but it was giving him too many shocks. Oh, gosh. And that was one reason. Yeah. Isn't that swell? Oh, humans. Jason Gillette in Ohio agrees with you. He says, I I always have a hard time considering the non-humans we sent into space. They suffered a lot of stress or didn't make it back. He says he's glad to hear about Enos, though. Courtney Katz from Pennsylvania, she learned about Enos from Mary Roach's book, Packing for Mars, which, of course, we talked to Mary about in in one of the uh, most fun episodes of Planetary Radio ever. And finally, back to Ohio for our last contribution today from uh, Jerry Robinette. He says, uh, how has Enos the Spaceship never become a Saturday morning cartoon? I would totally binge on that. And he adds, keep up the good work. And so, uh, Arnie, I, I guess he's talking to you. Bruce, do you have a new one for us? Yes, oddly enough, I do this time. DART headed off to the binary asteroid system with the larger asteroid being Didymos. What telescope discovered Didymos? What telescope was used to discover Didymos? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. You have until Wednesday, November 24 the day before Thanksgiving here in the United States uh, at 8 a.m. Pacific time on that day to get us this answer and win yourself a uh, Planetary Society kick asteroid, rubber asteroid. I believe we're done. Arnie, thank you for joining us. You're welcome. It was my pleasure. Once again, thank you for your support. Bruce, take us out. All right. First, thank you, Arnie. We really appreciate your support. And everybody else? Go out there, look up the night sky, and think about what a caricature of Matt would look like and what (laughs) you would emphasize. Thank you, and good night. They may not have to look farther than this week's show page at planetary.org slash radio because we'll try and upload it there. That was Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, joined by Arnie Grote, scientist, engineer, and supporter of the Planetary Society. Thank you both, guys. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its members who are helping us make a deep impact. You can help change the course of history at planetary.org slash join. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. At Astro.